0: All right. Let's pick up. Uh, see what time we got here. Um, looking at uh, so far, what we've done is look at some just some basic hermeneutical issues, sort of lay out covenant, uh, across the canon, and now we want to to now investigate issues of infant baptism, and uh, take uh, their argument, and obviously their argument is uh, intimately tied to the covenants, and then evaluate what they do with that, right? So here I begin with uh, simply the covenantal argument uh, for infant baptism. And there's a lot of ways you could summarize it. Uh, I'm picking up on Randy Booth's book uh, where he just sort of lays down uh, five different areas where he says this is crucial to understand the covenantal argument. Uh, he begins with the notion of covenant theology. So he says covenant theology, Uh, continuity of the covenant of grace, continuity of the people of God, continuity of covenant signs, continuity of households. And then he emphasizes strongly, obviously, uh, the unity of the canon, uh, but then ties it to issues of, uh, of covenants. Now, covenant theology, he says there's one covenant of grace. And that's been very typical for uh, covenant theology. Covenant theology speaks of covenant of redemption. That's a plan between the persons of the Godhead uh, in eternity, covenant of works uh, tied to Adam, and then covenant of grace. And covenant of grace uh, for them covers all of the biblical redemptive uh, covenants. Uh, Now for a person like uh, Booth, uh, Doug Wilson, Greg Strawbridge, others like this within covenant theology, they will argue that all of the covenants, uh, redemptive covenants are of the very same nature. Uh, They're all conditional, uh, including the new covenant. And uh, that leads them particularly with the new covenant to then uh, deny um, uh, issues of some imputation, uh, and views of justification change, and uh, issues of then works in relationship to faith and federal vision views uh, are talked about within that kind of, of circle. Uh, others will then say there's one covenant of grace, yet there is a kind of law gospel distinction. But there's there's one still umbrella that we uh, speak under, right? So there's the covenant theology in its classic form uh, governs the argument for infant baptism. Then they then tie this to the unity, the continuity of the covenant of grace so that as you move across the covenants uh, there are things that remain unchanged. Now obviously everyone has to speak of some kind of discontinuity, some kind of fulfillment but uh, at the point where the signs, uh, the nature of the covenant community, that Basically remains the same as you move from Old Testament to New Testament across the covenant of grace. The people of God, uh, they also argue that there's Israel church basically is the same, of the same nature. Uh, Mixed community. Mixed community means that there are both believers and unbelievers that constitute the visible church. Uh, They're happy to call visible church Israel. So whether it's Israel church, They're a visible community that is comprised of both believers and unbelievers within it. And particularly the unbelievers are those who have received the sign of the covenant, uh, yet are children, infants who have not yet exercised faith. And then the continuity of the covenant signs. As you move across redemptive history, as you move, um, because there's one covenant, there's one covenant of grace, Uh, Then you move from circumcision to baptism. They basically signify the same thing. They're different, obviously. There's a scope that's changed as you get to uh, the New Testament, where now male and female both receive the sign. That's not possible uh, with uh, circumcision, Um, but they signify uh, the same thing. So they speak of it in terms of a change of of, of scope. And then the household argument that carries through. The households, the importance of the households, so that, uh, you know, that's why, in in terms of the book of Acts, um, where you have uh, the, the jailer and the household is baptized, I mean, that just becomes definitive proof for them that their their view is the case right so there's their overall argument and it's tied to understanding of the covenants in more of a continuity not discontinuity the signs remain the same even though they're different they signify the same thing the people of God remain the same uh, even though we talk about Israel church uh, it's still a mixed community and thus you can move quickly from circumcision to baptism circumcision to infant baptism now, sort of a critique and evaluation in terms of what I said uh, prior to, to break my overall um, response to this in terms of their covenant argument. I mean, we could, I mean, Baptists have, have appealed, first of all, to uh, the New Testament to say, look, um, there's nothing in the New Testament that gives warrant to infant baptism, right? uh, There's no command for it, it's silent on this. That doesn't seem to bother them too much, right? So um, (laughs) this is where they just basically go from the Old Testament. I mean, normally uh, they appeal to everything in the New Testament to interpret the old, but not at this point, So in order to really respond to them, I mean, I think you can respond from the New Testament, many Baptists have done so, but also if you want to sort of undercut their arguments, you've got to then say, I think the way that you put this all together in terms of the covenant relationship is, is flawed. So my overall response to them is, and I said this before, I don't think you're covenantal enough. They don't like that response. Um, You fail to understand the proper relationships between the biblical covenants and thus you tend to flatten the covenants. You don't treat each covenant in its own context. You don't then ask what comes before, what comes after, and then see the unfolding plan, and then particularly you miss the discontinuity, the changes that then come in the light of Christ, so that the progressive, everyone affirms progressive revelation, but they do not consistently work this out, so that with this umbrella term of covenant grace, there tends to be simply reading of the scripture at a kind of flat level how else to describe it so that uh, others have made this uh, same argument uh, as well they tend to read the discontinuity, the new covenant realities back into the old testament so they basically treat abrahamic and depending on who you're talking to sinai as almost new covenant same kind of realities uh, without then saying no they are not the same kind of realities and you then have to let each covenant stand on its own So that's sort of a kind of overall uh, response saying that you're not doing justice to textual horizon, how the covenants fit in terms of the plan of God, and then overall of canon. Now, four other kind of responses we'll just sort of develop and unpack. Um, The first idea is this whole notion of the covenant of grace. Uh, in, In the chapter I wrote, I basically said we need to have a moratorium on this term because it's so loaded with baggage. It so assumes an entire viewpoint that it's not helpful anymore to simply talk about the covenant of grace. Right? What, if you want to talk about the one plan of God, fine. If you want to talk about uh, how God works out his plan across uh, redemptive history, that's fine. But the term, the covenant of grace, is really a theological category. It's a category that is used to try to explain how the canon fits together. And the end result is it's it's not a bad idea to have theological categories. We have this with the word Trinity and everything else. But as long as you are doing justice to the entire presentation. So that if you use this term to flatten down the covenants, misunderstand the relationships, draw improper conclusions that scripture will eventually not let you draw, then it's better to simply say, let's scrap the term. Let's speak about covenants. Let's ask the hard question of how each of those covenants are presented in their context and what comes earlier, what comes later, and then speak of the unfolding plan of God, the unity of that plan, right? So we need to sort of turn that aside. If I were talking to a press I'd say, let's scrap this term. Let's now speak about each covenant in its own context in light of the whole Bible. Now, another point to pick up here is for them everything eventually goes back to Abrahamic so that their understanding of the Abrahamic covenant in relationship all the other biblical covenants I do not think is correct right? now why do they take everything back to the Abrahamic well I think the reason they do so and they may dispute this but I think they do so is that's where you find to you and your children right? so there's where you find what I'm calling here the genealogical principle So that uh, they treat the Abrahamic covenant as basically, if it's uh, Klein and Horton and others, they treat that as basically the same as the new covenant with some differences. Obviously, Christ brings some differences, but that same genealogical principle carries throughout. What they fail to miss is some of these national, physical typological elements of the Abrahamic covenant in its old context and then how it ultimately is picked up across the canon of scripture so that they then read back into this Abrahamic covenant too much of the new before you actually get to the new and I think that's their the main problem that they have so that in responding to this we then have to go back and try to then say how is the Abrahamic covenant functioning in its own context there's no doubt the Abrahamic covenant is crucial in Scripture. I mean, they certainly lay this out. I don't disagree with them at all. It's part of, uh, uh, you know, in terms of Genesis 12, God's uh, solution to how ultimately the issue of sin and the fall are going to be dealt with, uh, how through the Abrahamic seed there will come the promised one. That's picked up uh, later in terms of Christ. So we shouldn't dispute anything of the importance of the Abrahamic covenant. But it cannot be reduced simply to its what they're doing as spiritual elements alone. They move to the Abrahamic covenant too fast. They come from the New Testament back on it and read into it realities that aren't there, First and foremost, in its textual horizon, and then uh, they then misunderstand in terms of where it's leading and how it's ultimately picked up as you move across Scripture. This can best be illustrated, and this is at the heart of infant baptism, with this to you and your seed, which is picked up in Genesis 17:7. 7. They understand to you and your seed as physical, and certainly that is the case in, in, in Genesis 17. So Abraham, you have your seed, you have your physical offspring, you are to circumcise them. I'm giving this as a sign of the covenant, and you now do this to your family members. But of course, the seed of Abraham is a little trickier than this. It certainly refers, in the first sense, physical. uh, So it applies to Ishmael first. It applies to Isaac. It applies to um, ultimately the sons of Keturah after Sarah uh, dies. It applies to those in the household. It's primarily here a physical marker. And then when you look at Abraham's seeds, I mean, as you trace out seeds of Abraham, they always don't continue simply in terms of the physical. As you work across the canon, you do have all of Abraham's physical children. You also have Isaac, that's obviously physical, yet takes on a greater significance than Ishmael or the sons of Keturah. He remains unique. Things are narrowed. You have election, that is now. So not only Abraham's election, but you have Isaac, not Ishmael. Right? And that's picked up uh, in, the, in the scripture as well. You do have in the seeds of Abraham uh, the ultimate fulfillment of this. Galatians 3.16, Jesus Christ. So that's what I would call a typological sense. And as you move ultimately to where the the seed of Abraham, Isaac initially, ultimately to Jesus Christ, there's some massive changes from Isaac, the Abrahamic covenant, where you have a kind of physical lineage to then the covenant mediator of the new covenant, Jesus Christ and his children. So you and your children, the ultimate fulfillment of that becomes Christ, the head of a new covenant. And then you have to ask who are Christ's children? There's where there's a spiritual sense that is applied to us in terms of Abraham. We can be the children of Abraham, but as you move to the new covenant, when Christ comes, who's the anti-type of Isaac, the children are spiritual children. You don't have anything in terms of the New Testament. Christ is the head of the New Covenant. His children are believers and their children. I mean, that just is breaking uh, how this moves as you go from Abraham and then eventually to Israel, to David, and so on. Right? Christ is the head of the New Covenant, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic, the children of Jesus, the children of Christ, the ones who become sons and daughters, are people of faith. People have been joined to Christ by union with him. So that Galatians 3, 26 through 29, Jew and Gentile, it's not physical lineage. Uh, You can come from, uh, in terms of every tribe, nation, people and tongue, but it comes from those who have been brought uh, to life by the spirit, who are people of faith and are united to Jesus Christ, the head, So there is a genealogical principle. It's grounded first physically But as you move through the seeds of Abraham, you have seeds of Abraham not merely physical. You have a typological fulfillment. You also have a spiritual fulfillment uh, tied to the church, to the people of God. Uh, And those people now are people who are joined to him by faith. So their treatment of the Abrahamic, they have to eventually say, uh, as you work across redemptive history, the genealogical principle to you and your children, this physical lineage continues unchanged. That's not how it uh, is working. There's a massive discontinuity that they are not doing justice to. Now, I've already highlighted a little bit of how this applies to, to infant baptism. Right? Uh, covenant theology illegitimately conflates the Abrahamic covenant totally with the new covenant. Well, it's obviously related, but it's not exactly the same thing. Right? Uh, Israel, eventually, as you come through Abrahamic to Mosaic, Israel might be as the people of God, a uh, kind of type and pattern that's picked up in terms of the New Testament people of God, but this Christological fulfillment is really downplayed. I mean, again, what covenant theologian wants to downplay Christological fulfillment? But in some sense, in which you move from uh, Abraham, his seed, Israel, to then us, us and our you know, believers and their children, the church, the church being the same thing as Israel, Christ's fulfillment. Him as the antitype, him as the one who is the true seed, thus bringing us into relationship with him is just diminished. So that they move too fast uh, to the new covenant, they do not see the christological fulfillment, and then they miss these various distinctions that are then made as you move across uh, across the canon. So as again the genealogical principle, as you move to the new head, our Lord Jesus Christ is not physical; it's spiritual. And uh, that is then laid out in, in a variety of ways, right? So there's where I'm simply criticizing them. I mean, as they, you know, they talk rightly about the Abrahamic covenant, but they still have to treat it in its own context, right? They tend to just simply spiritualize it. This is what it means. Circumcision means this. This is what the people symbolize. This is what it means in terms of spiritual salvation. That's why covenant theologians constantly are saying, well, the nation of Israel is a redeemed people, we are a redeemed people, therefore the church in Israel are the same. They're using redeemed uh, in an equivocal way, in the sense of in different ways. Uh, what you mean by redeemed in the Old Testament context is primarily first out of slavery, out of that nation. It may have, you know, uh, Israel within Israel kind of implications for uh, some, you know, actually are believers, but many of them are not. That's not what it means when it says we are a redeemed people. So again, these are part of the uh, sort of type, anti-type misunderstandings, uh, failure to see how this plan uh, progresses and how the Abrahamic covenant is worked out through the other covenants and then brought to fulfillment in terms of Jesus Christ. So there's the second area uh, in terms of uh, criticism. A third area just deals now with the newness of the new covenant. The change that occurs here, and as a result of that, the whole change in the covenant community. Right? They tend to, in terms of their argument, treat Israel and church as the same thing. And that's why they do it, because they treat Israel as a spiritual entity, they treat uh, the church as a spiritual entity, and so then the covenant signs come over the same way, the nature of that church or that community is the same way. Uh, So they will argue in the old covenant, whether it's tied to Abraham, particularly tied to Israel as a nation, they are a believing, unbelieving entity, what I'm calling here a mixed kind of community. The New Testament people of God, the church, is a mixed community. That's why when they use the expression, the visible church, I'm encouraging you to put a moratorium on that term as well, right? Because what they mean by visible church is they mean a church that is constituted by believers and unbelievers. And they'll come back to me and they'll say, and they'll probably come back to you and say, well, when you go to your local church on Sunday, are there believers and unbelievers there? And I'll say, absolutely. Absolutely. LCC, visible church, unbelievers, believers. And I said, wait a second here. The main difference is we don't say the church is constituted by these people. Uh, We may get it wrong and everything else in terms of their professions and whatnot, but we don't say the people are the church unless they profess faith that they say, I have been regenerated. We've done our best to examine them. So we say the visible church are those who we see visibly, but that are professors who are believers, who are regenerate. And we may you know, get it wrong, only God knows that. But you have constituted the church by its very nature a believing, unbelieving community. You are bringing people in and saying they're objectively covenant members when they haven't believed anything. Right? Now that's two different views of visible church. So, that they're getting this from Israel is the same then as the people of God. So, that the Old Covenant, as you move to the New Covenant, in terms of the, you know, there may be some differences, but in terms of the people of God, the nature of the people of God, it is exactly uh, the same and remains unchanged. So, that's why a lot of covenant theologians, right, they will speak about the New Covenant as a renewal tries to preserve continuity terms uh, we interacted with a book by edited by Greg Strawbridge on um, on the argument for this and in that book there was conflicting viewpoints uh, which was quite humorous to see within their own camp so we had one person I forget his name who was arguing the new covenant is simply dealing with uh, the promise of a greater priest and you think that's not really what Jeremiah 31 speaking about And then you have Richard Pratt, who teaches at Reformed Theological Seminary, who says, oh, no, 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 this Jeremiah 31 passage, I mean, it's really speaking of a regenerate community, people who have the law written on the hearts, the people who know God, the people who have full forgiveness of sins. And then he comes along and says, yes, but we have to realize that that's not here until Christ comes again. Now, this is an abuse of what we call inaugurated eschatology. Inaugurated eschatology is the idea that the promised age is now here. It's already here, but it's not yet consummated. We already have the spirit. We wait for the fullness. We already are the new creation, but we await the consummation of that new creation. So Pratt pulls this one. Where he says, in the future, it is a regenerate community. That's what we're shooting for. But in the present, it's a mixed community of believers, and unbelievers. Now try to apply Jeremiah 31, 34 in that way. At the heart of the new covenant, I said before, is the forgiveness of sin. So we say, well, the forgiveness of sin is sort of here, but it'll be really here in the future. What do you do with Romans 8.1? Now, if anybody be in Christ, right, there is now no condemnation. The end time verdict has been rendered. No doubt we will receive more benefits and blessings of salvation, but we now are in right relationship to God. We have forgiveness of sins. We have been justified. We don't await our forgiveness of sin down the road. So you, 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 know, you, you can't pick and choose uh, in this kind of fashion. So that uh, they have this way of handling it, but they often view this in a kind of renewal sense. Wilson and, um, and, and company uh, will often say that uh, the new covenant is a breakable covenant. They will come up with horrendous conclusions. So they will say anyone who has objectively been baptized in the triune name, regardless of whether it's Roman Catholic, Lutheran, whatever, Madonna the singer... Bishop Spong in the Episcopal Church. They've been baptized in the triune name. They are in the church, objectively. But they're covenant apostates uh, because they've denied uh, Christ. It's a breakable covenant. And then you start saying, what on earth is happening here? Uh, The system is now falling apart. Now, as you go back to, again, turn to Jeremiah 31, that's just not how this is presented, right? And it's not how the new covenant community is presented as you come to the New Testament, As I said before, 29 and 30 is already anticipating in Jeremiah 31, change of mediation. This eventually opens up into the New Testament where we have one mediator, In the Lord Jesus Christ, he fulfills all of the roles of prophet, priest, king. In those offices in the Old Testament, they are separated. It's a mediated covenant through leadership. In the New Covenant, that is going to be overturned. The fathers, the leaders in the Old Covenant, when they do wrong, the children pay for it. But there's coming a time when that will no longer be the case. Uh, There will be a direct knowledge of God. You will not come through this kind of tribal leadership where you have a leader a prophet priest and king that you is the way that you come to know God and have your sins forgiven and to be ruled over that's spoken of differently so there's a kind of directness that is here you also have in um, verse uh, 33 uh, write it on their minds write it on their hearts this is picked up in the prophetic literature. It's tied to circumcision of heart. It's tied to regeneration. It's tied to the gift of the spirit. The gift of the spirit isn't mentioned uh, directly here, but it is in Ezekiel. And you have to put these passages uh, together so that you think of Pentecost. I mean, we we reduce Acts two to simply debates with charismatics, right? Ah, That's what a shame that is, right? (laughs) Acts 2 is, there's a number of ways you could answer this question I'm going to ask, but uh, Acts 2 is one answer to it. If you say, what is the proof that Jesus Christ is Lord and Christ and has done a work that has been achieved and he has won the victory? Well, you could say, well, he's raised from the dead. You could also say the Spirit's here. Because it's all part of one package where as the prophets look forward, there's the future age that the Lord will usher in through his Messiah where the spirit is poured out. A resurrection will take place. The new creation will dawn. And that's why Joel 2 becomes important. In the last days, you know, the Lord will pour out his spirit. And who will have that spirit? Young and old. Men and women. It's not speaking of... You know, egalitarianism and women's ordination or anything else. Uh, It's speaking of the whole community. All within that community will have the spirit. And that's what's going on here in Jeremiah 31 as well. So that he, you know, can say, no longer will a man teach his neighbor. They will all know me. All of this is covenantally defined, right? People, I mean, this is a whole different discussion. I don't know if you've heard of uh, inclusivists. Inclusivists are those who um, argue that uh, uh, one can receive salvation by Jesus without ever knowing it. right? At least not knowing it in this life. Right? And they will appeal to some of these all passages. They'll appeal to uh, Joel 2 where they will all, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh as if now the spirit is poured out on anonymous Christians all over the world or something like this. The problem with that is it just rips it out of its context. The all flesh is covenantally defined. In the old covenant, not all knew the Lord. Not all had the spirit. So that uh, you have the leaders have the spirit and the spirit's poured out on the Davids and and, uh, the prophets and even the priests but not all in this kind of democratized sense where every single person, young, old, man, woman have the spirit, but that's what the new covenant promise is anticipating. And that's why it's tied to full forgiveness of sins. We will know God. We will know we will be justified. We will have the spirit. We will have the full um, knowledge in that sense. Again, it's not saying that there are no leaders. There's no teachers. I mean, clearly that's given, but we all have as the regenerate community uh, the blessings of God—that's tied to the promise of the new covenant. Now, if that's the case, and I mean a guy like Pratt has to say, "Well, that's what's going on here," but it's only future. Right? Uh, that's not how eschatology, New Testament eschatology, works. I mean, you have to then say that the covenant community, namely the church, because this is applied to the church in Hebrews ten, Hebrews ten and, and verse eight, and in Jesus Himself. Uh, you have to then say that the covenant community is a regenerate community. That's at the heart of Baptist theology. It's at the heart of New Covenant theology. We say that the church is comprised of people who have professed faith, who have been regenerated of the Spirit, who know God, and if you have not professed faith, and if you're not regenerate, you're not the church. Right? And uh, that's what's being and uh, anticipated here. Now, what brings the massive change? Christ. All that this has been leading to. He is this covenant head. So that union with Christ. What is union with Christ in the New Testament? This is where I think covenant theology really gets scary. (laughs) Because when they talk about union with Christ, they will say that these infants are objectively in the covenant. They're united with Christ. At least Wilson will push this to the wall. And that's why you have the open door there towards pedo communion if you baptize them, they're objectively in the covenant, they're united with Christ, why not give them the communion? Now, I've never seen how that works, right? How do you give a little infant, uh, you give them a drop or something? I don't know how that works. But, um, uh, you know, they, they, that's, that's sort of the logic of, of, of the view that they're going to, right? Um, but uh, that's not how it's presented as you move to the New Testament. Union with Christ, to be in united with Christ, union with Christ at its heart in the New Testament is he functions as my head. To be in Christ is the opposite of being in Adam to be in Adam is to be dead in your sins, to be part of that whole age, old era tied to sin, death and destruction, to be in Christ is to be transferred from that Adam's headship to in Christ, he's my covenantal head, he represents me, his work is now mine, by faith, so that all that he has achieved in his life death, resurrection ascension The pouring out of the spirit is mine. I will now receive the fullness of that. But it's interesting that uh, as you work from the objective work of Christ in the New Testament to soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, there's an intimate parallel. So they think of Ephesians 2. We're dead in our sins. We have been raised with Christ. Right? We have been seated with him. It just works through his work. Uh, his life is mine. His death is mine. His resurrection, I've been raised. Uh, we are now seated with him in the heavenlies. What is the heavenlies? It's not up in, it's up in the sky here. Uh, it's dealing with the age that he has inaugurated, the new covenant realities. We are already participants of this. Uh, the church is not tied to the structures of this age right and that becomes important in ecclesiology church state a whole host of, uh, of, of of issues here but we are identified with christ and union with him means that we have been made alive that we are no longer dead nurses you cannot say someone is not regenerate and is united to jesus christ this is a distortion of the New Testament, but the Pado baptist has to say that if you make these spiritual realities uh, the same as you work across uh, these covenants. And that's why in the New Testament, uh, it's been pointed out, um, and uh, we've tried to argue this in, in that book on Believer's Baptism. I mean, the New Testament so closely identifies baptism with salvation, not that baptism is necessary for salvation. But in the New Testament, it is unthinkable that a person who's a Christian is not baptized. So much so that in a, say, a Roman six, you can say, you know, you're dead to sin. You were baptized in him. I don't think baptism there is referring to spiritual. I mean, that's the implication, but I think it's when you were water baptized. Uh, baptism is so close it's a shorthand for repentance faith, being brought into faith union with him and it's all publicly displayed in baptism so that the one who is being baptized is signifying or saying publicly I have died with Christ, I've been buried with Christ I've been raised with Christ, that is the reality I am now a member of the new covenant you can't say that of someone who's an unbeliever and this is where then the, you know, the problem comes in, in, in seeing these things brought over in terms of infant, uh, infant baptism. So the nature of the new covenant is of a new community. It's that which is new, right? So with my dispensational brothers and sisters, I would argue that the church begins at Pentecost. I would argue that. Um, redemptive historically, it's tied back to the people of God. There's always been one people of God, but there's something new about the church. Now that Christ has come, Israel, you know, points forward to Christ, uh, speaks of his people. There are people of God in the Old Testament, uh, but we then as the church are now tied to that which all of this points. So there's something new about the church and the reality and the experience that we have uh, as new covenant people of God. And baptism signifies that. Now this leads to the one last area, and we'll finish with this, is the relationship of circumcision and baptism if under the new covenant and in the new covenant community in the church I mean there's something new here why is it new? because Christ has come right? then of course the covenant signs to just simply say these are signifying the same thing is just fundamentally mistaken right? so that their view the infant Baptist view contends that circumcision and baptism essentially carry the same spiritual meaning they have to claim that In fact, I'm always flabbergasted by Doug Wilson. Um, Doug Wilson in his book uh, argues this, and this is consistent with this position, but it's horrendous in terms of the New Testament. He says, if the Apostle Paul had a child, a male child, uh, after Christ had come, right? He's a Christian. He could have circumcised that child and it would carry the same covenantal significance as baptism after Christ, right, so that, I mean, but you'd have to say that if they mean the same thing, you have to say that. and then you have to say, well, why then does Paul say circumcision is nothing, and then he has to say, well, because, you know, uh, the, the Gentiles had to be incorporated, and so it gave away to a different sign to bring Jew-Gentile together, I uh, don't know, Circumcision is tied to the old covenants, tied to the old, the old Testament covenants. It is done away with because those covenants have reached their end. They have reached their terminus, right? They have come to fulfillment in Jesus Christ, right? But their view, is they carry the same kind of spiritual kind of meaning. Is this the case? Does circumcision signify the same spiritual realities of baptism? They're parallel. I mean, they're covenant signs. They're parallel that way. Obviously, there's similarity but there's massive differences between them. Each of them have to be understood in terms of their context, where they're given, what they signify, and then how through the canon they are then developed, picked up, and applied. And when you do that, you cannot say circumcision baptism is the same thing. Let me just lay out a couple of points here. The first, as we go to circumcision, it's first given in Genesis 17. In that Old Testament context, it's tied to the Abrahamic covenant, no doubt, it signifies a physical marker. We'll come back to that. Now, it's also signifying. It's picked up in Romans 4. Uh, it's signifying promises given to Abraham and everything else. But Paul's argument there in Romans 4 is faith comes first. Right? Uh, he's declared righteous. Circumcision is added later. It will signify Abrahamic promises, no doubt but it's certainly uh, not necessary for justification. It's certainly not necessary for salvation. It's something that's tied to that covenant and that's where it's first given. We then think through what does circumcision signify in the Abrahamic covenant? Well, I think you have to say first thing it signifies is it's a physical marker, It speaks of a national entity. It separates Abraham and his seed from the nations. That would make sense. Because Abraham is now called out of the nations to be unique through that seed to bring now salvation to the world. And it functions, and primarily in the old covenants, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic carries through with this as well, it functions as a national marker. That's its primary point. So that uh, as you then uh, see that, I mean, you'll then have to ask, uh, you know, does baptism signify that same kind of thing in the New Testament? And I don't think it does, but its primary sense is a kind of physical marker. It also has, I think, also a typological sense tied to that seed. So that as you have the seed with Isaac, it anticipates one to come, then circumcision, I mean... The male is chosen to anticipate the coming of a messianic one, messianic line, so it's a national marker, as well as then a kind of anticipation. Every male child that's born, and that then promise is narrowed as you go through the Old Testament, is in some sense looking forward to the coming of Messiah, coming forward of the seed of promise. Now under Mosaic, it carries through, the circumcision carries through very similar as it does in the Abrahamic. It continues to mark a national entity, right? You think of how so much of that old covenant delineates the nation from the nations, right? Israel from the nations, right? Their land does this, all of the clean, unclean, uh, all of the regulations, uh, external markers saying that you are different than the world, right? And it sets them apart in that way. It's still applied, though, to a national entity that is comprised of believers and unbelievers. So that uh, in the darkest days of Israel, you still kept, unbelievers kept still circumcising their sons. Uh, Believers who were actually believing God's promise still circumcised their sons. So that uh, even this expression, believers and their children doesn't even apply to Israel. I mean, all kinds of unbelievers were circumcising their son. It was a national marker so that if you were a Jew ethnically, racially, and wanted to identify uh, with the people of God, you then marked them out by circumcision. That's its primary purpose in the Mosaic Covenant. As you work through, though, the Old Testament history under the Mosaic Covenant, it starts to take on added significance. It starts to point beyond itself. So, that as you then move through this idea, again, the book of Leviticus, I mean, why unclean clean? Is there something inherent in animals, in pigs, that is unclean versus something that's not? Well, if you, I mean, some people have argued that, but if you argue that, then what do you do when the New Testament comes and says, all animals are all clean now? Right? I think what you have to say is, God sets the boundaries, He's teaching this people. He's put them in the land. He's instructing them. They're supposed to start putting two and two together here. It's supposed to dawn on them that this, um, you know, whatever is given in terms of animals or sacrifices or whatever, is supposed to then point to something greater. Circumcision starts to do that. So you receive this physical mark, but then you begin to say, you know what? And the prophets picked this up. You know, you really need circumcised hearts. It's not enough to simply say, we're going to give you this mark. You're still unbelievers, you're still rebels, you still don't keep the law of God, you need something more. And of course, as you work through, you know, even Deuteronomy 30, we'll speak of God circumcising the heart. Or Ezekiel 36, the law written on the hearts, and it's tied to the kind of circumcision theme. So that under the Mosaic Covenant, it's functioning as a national marker, continued from the Abrahamic, yet it's starting to take on some spiritual significance. It's pointing beyond itself. A lot of things do that as well. The whole sacrificial system does that. The priesthood does that. The the temple, the tabernacle, this is the common pattern. Now, when you come to the New Testament, the New Testament is very, very clear. Circumcision is no longer in force. 1 Corinthians 7, circumcision is nothing. Uh, There you have obey God's commands, right? Uh, You say, well, wait a second here. Circumcision is God's command, right? Yeah, there it's talking about in terms of its covenantal context, right? So that in the New Testament, um, membership in the church is not tied to circumcision. Matter of fact, if you think it is, Paul says you denied the gospel. Right? So that circumcision in light of Christ's coming, right? In light of the fact that that to which it points, the covenants, that to which they point, now that Christ has come, it is no longer covenantally significant. Doug Wilson is not correct uh, at this point. So that the covenant of circumcision is no longer in force. It's served its purpose. Uh, the Ephesians chapter 2, the law and its commands are torn down. That's not just moral commands. That's the entire covenant is fulfilled. That's how you have one new man. How do you have Jew and Gentile under equal footing? The covenant has to be fulfilled because if the covenant is not fulfilled in terms of its whole package, you've got division. You've got built-in God-given division and that has to be dealt with and fulfilled and brought to an end in order for there to be one new man standing on equal footing in Jesus Christ so that uh, uh, it is now clearly the New Testament brought to an end. The covenantal sign, there's similarity with baptism Baptism is the covenantal sign of the new covenant. But it does not signify anything. Circumcision. I mean, circumcision points forward to it, but baptism is not a sign of physical descent. Baptism is a sign that one has been joined to Jesus Christ. One has entered into the realities of the new covenant as then unfolded in terms of of the scripture. It doesn't anticipate gospel realities. It speaks of gospel realities. It doesn't anticipate circumcision of the heart down the road. It says I have been circumcised of heart. I have been regenerated. I am in faith union with Jesus Christ and all the benefits of that union I now have. So that baptism fundamentally signifies something different. So that as you work across the canon, circumcision in light of the entire Bible, conveys two truths. One, it marks out a physical people and nation. It has served that mark very well. Secondly, it anticipates New Testament realities. It anticipates New Testament realities in circumcision of the heart, and it also anticipates new realities in terms of, I think, ultimately, every single male child that was circumcised anticipates, hopefully, the coming of the final one. Why is Christ's circumcision described in Luke two? I mean, you say, well, it's just described there. It Maybe it's, it's part of him being under the law. In some ways, you could say, with the coming of Jesus Christ with his circumcision, that's the last, in some sense, covenantally significant circumcision in, in the scripture. I mean, he's the one that all of that has been leading us to. So that, yes, there's still transition time and everything else that goes on, but it served as a physical marker. It is typological, spiritual in the sense that it points us forward to Christ, and it now reaches its spiritual reality in terms of circumcision of the heart. Baptism, as a covenant sign, does not signify that. To mix that up just simply denies union with Christ. That's at the heart of baptism. It denies that we have been di- died with Christ, we've been buried with Christ, we've been raised with Christ, and all that, uh, that signifies in terms of entrance into the new covenant. So the new covenant people of God receive the sign of the covenant, which signifies that they have come into faith union with Jesus Christ, that they are participants of the new covenant These other covenants have now come to their end. This is the end of the line, Hebrews chapter 1. All of the prophets now in these last days have been culminated in the Son, so that the lesser has given away to the greater. Now, we still await the fullness. We still await the second coming. We still await uh, the consummation of the ages. But forgiveness is here now. Regeneration is here now. The spirit is here now. The new creation is here now. Yet we wait and we cry with the church of all ages, come, Lord Jesus, to experience the fullness of this. We are His new covenant people now, living our lives out parallel with some things in the old, but not, you know, as that old theocracy. Uh, we are a spiritual entity. Uh, we, you know, relate to this world that is falling away. Uh, the age that this present world is part of will give away to the uh, the consummation of the ages and we begin to live our lives ethically we begin to relate to our country and state and the world uh you know as the people of god with our identity found there and we then take the gospel to the nations we see people enter that kingdom which we then cry uh you know kind kingdom come in the sense of its fullness and we begin to live out as uh, the people of god today And to mix these things creates a whole host of problems that probably the most severe problem, I mean, Baptists have problems too, but the most severe problem is that you bring your infants and you basically treat them. I mean, you treat them as covenant members, you treat them as part of the church, you treat them as part of the new covenant, and they never really close with Christ. That's a a major problem, presumptive regeneration what our children need. And, and constantly the, uh, the, the covenantal people will come and say, well, what about your children? Uh, how are they outside the blessings? I mean, you know, uh, all of these households. Well, the whole household theme, you know, the whole household of God now is seen in terms of those who are physical families, but the most important link is believers in Jesus Christ. Right? And the greatest thing my physical children need to hear from me Need to see in terms of my example, and what they need to have, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, preached and taught and lived out before them, is they need to come to faith union in Jesus Christ. They don't need to think that, you know, their father who's a believer and they as as children are suddenly now in the new covenant. They're not in the new covenant. They are not in faith union with Jesus Christ. They are in Adam, Uh, and until they are regenerate and they believe, they are outside of Jesus Christ. That's what really is at stake at this not only putting our bibles together but people's salvation can be at stake at this if we're not careful now on the baptist side of things we go baptize people so quickly at two years old they say i believe in jesus walk an aisle uh, and uh, we then uh, you know aren't really sure that they are believers that they have come to faith in jesus christ we have to be very concerned about that Uh, but uh, baptism is an important test case that connects your whole Bible together and uh, it really illustrates and it's not just simply an academic exercise but it really illustrates uh, how God's plan has unfolded and getting this wrong really gets us off uh, in terms of how the Bible fits and uh, it'll then affect all kinds of other areas as well that we could you know develop in terms of eschatology ecclesiology uh, the doctrine of the church and other other matters but We'll leave it uh, there and uh, let's pray, and then I think we have what question, answer, or break, or whatever we have. So uh, let's, let's pray, and then we'll go to the next phase here. Heavenly Father, as we have thought through uh, just briefly a uh, very, very important issue of, of baptism, uh, when we look at what it actually signifies uh, in terms of the New Testament the beauty of our our faith union with you. By grace, you've made us alive. You've brought us to faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord, the new covenant head, the Lord of glory who has come, who has fulfilled all of the shadows and types of the old that everything is headed up and consummated in him. What a glorious savior we have and to think that um, as we are baptized, that it signifies that uh, we have repented of our sins by your grace, that we have believed in him, that we have been transferred from Adam to Christ, that we know the benefits and the blessings and the glories of the new covenant, that you have said that in, in, in faith union with Christ, because of what he has done, Uh, you remember our sins no more, that we are restored to what we were once made to be, your image bearers, glorifying you, enjoying you, uh, living our lives uh, uh, in every aspect of it, um, in our work, in our families, in society, to your glory and to your honor. What a privilege it is that... uh, baptism so beautifully signifies conveys these gospel realities Uh, we are concerned that other views uh, diminish these gospel realities and so we want to get it right Uh, we want to know what your word says in this we know that we have many uh, dear brothers and sisters who disagree with us And uh, we pray that uh, your church would come to understand these issues with better clarity. Uh, We pray that uh, even in our looking at this, that we are accurate and right, and that we've rightly divided the word of truth, uh, not only for our own um, issues to defend, more than that, uh, for your glory, for the truth of your word, for the beauty of the gospel, so that uh, it is now clearly communicated in our lives, in our churches, and in the world. May we desire to see Christ exalted and glorified uh, in our thinking and in the nations. And may we see him uh, as the book of Revelation gives us, every tribe, nation, people, and tongue, uh, regardless of physical lineage and descent, those who come to faith in him, part of one family, one people, uh, so that uh, they from all for, for now and for all eternity will give him glory and honor and praise what he rightly deserves as King of King, kings and Lord of lords. May this be our heart's cry and desire. Uh, help us to wrestle with these matters, but to do so in such a way that uh, we are passionate about our great Redeemer who has made all of this a reality. And uh, even in thinking of these issues, may it remind us once again of who Jesus is and what he has done. And uh, may it lead us to be uh, God-centered to you, Father, Son, and Spirit, in the face of your own dear Son, uh, so that uh, we will uh, give you all the glory for what you've done in Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's in his name that we ask all of these things.